This is Jasmine, and I'm here with Emily. Um, hey. Hi, Emily. Hey, Jasmine. It's just the two of us. <laughs> yeah. Like the old days when we would sometimes be the only two in the studio. I know. Everybody else would be making a mad dash to Bushwick on a Sunday, <laughs> yeah. chronically yes. late. And then there's somebody oh, like hanging on like, uh, so uh, <laughs> But um, and this is yeah. Happy Sunday, everybody! Like we're pre-recording this on Friday, October second, the first Friday yes. of spooky season. Yes, and this is objection to the rule too. Did, I don't know. I maybe you said it. I'm. I got my eyes dilated Probably today, so I feel not. like I'm a little bit drunk <laughs> 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 on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, but yes, it's the beginning of spooky season. My favorite season. Um, bring on the chilly weather and the hot drinks i'm so excited i'm looking forward to the mulled wine and the trees changing mm. color but I, I do not like the cold so i'm kind of sad it's you know but yeah such is life <laughs> the seasons literally tis the season you know from yeah, season speak, to season speaking of spooky we got some mm. spooky news last night about uh the current occupant of the White House. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. Well. We did. The president's got COVID, y'all. Crazy. You know, his wife. Who yep. knows how many his... other people in there? Yep. This like the 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 this happened with Herman Cain too. He was it was he was one minute. I mean, he he passed away from it. But one minute he was saying like it's not a big deal, and the next minute he literally died from it. And we don't know at this point how sick the president actually is. Um, last I heard, they were they were saying that he had mild symptoms, which I think is probably more serious than that. Because I think if he had mild symptoms, they would say he had no symptoms. Right. Just the way that this administration works, I think it's probably a little more serious than that. Yeah, um, and wasn't it? It wasn't it a leak. Like I don't think I think somebody in the mm, press wrote that they tested positive before they could come out ahead of the story. I believe it. Yeah, because I know I know Hope Hicks. It so she was she I think was his press secretary. I don't think she still is, but she was the first one who it was announced was positive. I think yesterday I was reading that. And then the president, yeah, and then it was suspected because she had traveled with him that he caught it. And then there, lo and behold, and then Biden, you know, as a uh, has tested negative, which is yeah, because he good was news. wearing the biggest mask we've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Just like so much like irony of unlike a Shakespearean, you know, scale here. Truly, um. It's wild, wild times. And then also Rick Moranis got punched in the head. Yeah, Did you what, hear? What, what, what? <laughs> what the fuck? So my dad looks a lot like Rick Moranis, like looks like him when he was younger and still looks like him as an older man, like Ed, oh. Ed Rick Moranis' older man. So it's very like near and dear to me. It's been like a whole thing in our family for decades. Um, so I... No respect. Do they even know who Rick Moranis No. You're, oh, you're you're a little hard to hear. You're glitching out a little bit. Can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Cool. I can hear you now, yeah. Cool. But yeah, wild day. Wild day. Um, but we have more. We have lots of stories to get to. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of stories uh, and way fewer people. So we're, yeah. you're, you're, we're missing out um, on having Teresa, right. Matt, and Sarah with us. On the air, um, Teresa is just this week, but you'll hear her um, pre-recorded story later on. 
Um, Matt yes. is taking like sort of an indefinite hiatus from the show yeah, to work Matt- on some other things. Yeah, he's going to be helping out in the behind the scenes, occasionally helping to edit um, on the weekends that I can't. And we really appreciate that, Matt. Um, and he will be missed. Yeah. And um, Sarah is doing some, she's on like a mission of self-discovery this month or something <laughs> like that. I think, yeah, I think she, she told me she signed up for uh, a, it's like a, in a writing intensive. That's literally like every day, but I like the okay. way you phrased it. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, the same she, thing on some level, right? Self-improvement queen. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let the Rona get you down. Oh my God. Amen. Yeah. Quarantine goals. You know, they kept telling people, learn a skill, blah, blah, blah. Don't die. (laughs) Yeah. Good for Sarah. We missed them, but you know, you'll hear from them later on um, at some point. Definitely. Definitely. Cool. So with that, would you like to get into the local story? Oh, yeah. Just the proverbial knuckle crack. So this is this is a bit of a heavy hitter today. Um, So this is Emily. I did the local story today. And it is about uh, the indoor dining coming back to the city after months and months and months. Um, So I'll preface this by saying I've been working in the industry as a server and bartender for years at this point has been my main source of income. Um, for a few years, not, I don't want, not like decades, but like year, definitely years. Um, so this is very personal for me. Um, so let's dive in. All right. So my research for this story comes, um, from many resources, including the New York times, um, SI live.com, which I believe is Staten Island live business insider and NY one. Um, So as you have probably heard, after months of outdoor-only dining at restaurants, New York City reopened indoor dining this past Wednesday, September 30th. Uh, The decision to restrict dining to outdoor-only seating in the city originally came earlier this year in June after reports of spikes from COVID cases could be linked back to indoor bars and restaurants in other parts of the country as reopening processes were starting. Uh, New York City has has since held off on allowing indoor dining even as transmission rates have remained relatively low and other phases of reopening have moved forward. So keeping indoor dining off limits uh, has all in all likelihood been a key reason why COVID hasn't had a resurgence in the city. I would also probably assume that it's because a lot of people do wear masks when they're supposed to. Uh, But many restaurant owners have been struggling to keep their businesses operating on the outdoor only pickup only model, um, which is a big deal, which is serious. Uh, Many Owners are pushing. We're pushing to allow for indoor seating, claiming it's not fair that other regions in the state have been allowed to reopen indoors when they hit the metrics that New York City has indeed hit and been able to stay at so far. Uh, Melba Wilson, founder of Melba's in Harlem, remarked in an August 26 CNBC uh, article, "Quote: The restaurant industry is well is going to die as we know it in this city. How can we not at least open at a small percentage?" even 50%. If not, we're going to lose a lot of restaurants in this city. Uh, But back in August, Governor Cuomo made it clear that New York City was unique in its population density. And so was the risk. And so the risk that indoor dining might bring was also proportionally higher than other regions that had reopened more. Right. Um, But here, yeah, exactly. But here we are now in October and indoor dining is back. Uh, As you might expect, the governor's website lists a bunch of pretty intense COVID restrictions for indoor dining, like a 25% occupancy limit, uh, temperature checks for all customers at the door, no bar seating, 
One member of each party will need to provide contact information for tracing purposes if it becomes necessary. Uh, Restaurants close at midnight and tables must be six feet apart. The governor has said that if COVID numbers don't spike by the end, by the start of November, capacity might be allowed to increase. However, Mayor de Blasio has said that indoor dining could be shut down if case numbers do see a surge. Um, I should know that there are also owners that are nervous about the reopening. I know that I might make it, you know, paint a picture that they're all just like, let's get this shit open. But I'll, some of them are really nervous and are holding off on allowing it uh, to see how things go citywide first. Um, or they've decided that the restrictions that are going to be on them just don't make it worth their while financially to open indoors at all. I don't know if you ever, if anyone listening has ever been to a New York City restaurant, there are a few big ones, but the majority of them are like tiny holes in the walls that would only be able to fit maybe like one or two tables even at all. Um, so I'd like to mostly dedicate the rest of the story to the September 29th article from the New York Times uh, restaurant critic about the reopening of indoor dining. It's by Pete Wells, and it's titled, uh, New York Dining is Moving Indoors. How Nervous Should You Be? If you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend that you do. Uh, Wells talked to a lot of experts in all sorts of fields about how to increase safety with indoor dining and what diners should expect. He talked to a mechanical engineer about how relatively affordable air filter systems can help bring in fresh air, an architect about how rethinking the space um, and how the spaces used could prevent crowding, That it, like, i.e., moving the host stand outdoors. Um, And he talked to a restaurant owner about how they're rewriting their service handbook to reduce the personal contact between diners and staff. But Wells writes, uh, when I, when he talked to scientists, when I talked to scientists, my fears came back. This was him writing, Mm -hmm. not me personally. Um, So again, here, as someone who has worked in the industry, um, here are the takeaways from the article that really stuck with me. Quote, eating in restaurants is, to begin with, one of the greatest risk factors associated with COVID-19. In a study published this month by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, adults who had tested positive for the virus were asked where they had been and what they had done in the two weeks before coming down with symptoms. They were twice as likely to say they had eaten at a restaurant as people with negative test results. No other activity the researchers asked about uh, were linked to as many cases. Uh Quote, the larger droplets that leave our mouths when we talk may be a risk mainly to the people at our own table, said Lindsay Marr, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Virginia Tech. But the tiny aerosols that float on air currents can pass uh, can pose a risk to uh, to anyone in the room, even those on the far side of the partition. Quote, I think that's mostly theater, Dr. Marr said. Imagine the aerosols as cigarette smoke. Will that partition stop smoke? Hmm. Yep. Uh, So another quote from the article, Dr. Lindsay J. Leninger, a clinical professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College and one of the leaders of Dear Pandemic, a public health campaign, worries not only about servers whose risk goes up each time a new diner walks in, but also dishwashers and cooks, many of whom will be breathing the same indoor air as customers for the first time since the spring. Because of high real estate prices in Manhattan, many restaurant uh, workers, quote, have to commute out to very remote places and live in crowded multi-generational households, Dr. Leninger said. If one of them gets exposed in a restaurant, they could bring that, ex- um, that exposure back to their grandmother with diabetes. Similar conditions helped ignite the outbreak that tore through Bergamo, Italy. While she approves of many of New York's regulations, Dr. Leninger thinks it is next to impossible to make restaurants risk-free. Quote, I cannot tell you that indoor dining is safe, she said, period, full stop. 
And one last quote from that article. I can't believe we're going to risk another outbreak in New York so restaurants can have dining rooms that are three quarters empty. I can't believe restaurants and the people who work in them have been failed so badly by Washington that many will have no choice but to go along with it. I can't believe clear, straightforward safety advice is still so hard to come by at the government level that I had to spend most of a week on the phone with experts asking whether readers should actually eat inside the places I'm writing about. In a well-ordered society, readers wouldn't need to get that information from a restaurant critic. Um, And then I have one more quote (laughs) from a different article uh, that I'm going to more or less end with. Um, It's from Eater in New York, and they published an article on September 28th titled How New York City's Food Journalists Feel About the Return of Indoor Dining. Um, And this is what Ryan Sutton, who's the chief critic of Eater New York, had to say. Quote, I won't dine indoors anytime, anytime soon. I find it unconscionable to take part in a leisure activity that leaves underinsured and underpaid workers exposed to illness and death in exchange for 90 minutes of gastro uh, gastronomic diversion that could, quite frankly, be better enjoyed in a park or in an apartment. Honestly, the fact that there isn't a vaccine isn't even the biggest reason I won't dine out indoors. It's that our country has institutionalized a culture of disrespect for restaurant workers through weak regulations and insufficient social welfare support. How is it that you can get kicked out of an empty museum with as much square footage as Wayne Manor for taking off your mask, but you can you can sit in a small restaurant for two hours without a face covering while ordering vodka sodas from your waiter who's scared for their life? As diners, we set examples, and and simply the act of engaging in a demonstrably dangerous and non-essential economic transaction where the privileged party is protected and the vulnerable party is exposed, perpetuates the same structural inequalities that made this industry so problematic in the first place. Damn. Yeah, 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 damn right. I know. Um, Yeah, so that's that's my mouthful. Um, There is another person in that article, and I do have at least one, two, maybe a couple friends in the industry who see it a little differently where they agree that it's, you know, dangerous and scary, but at least for outdoor dining with a server, they think it's their responsibility as people who will respect the rules to go in and tip a lot and, you know, take up the space that an asshole would take instead. Um, I personally outdoor or indoor. So the, the main friend I've talked to about this says it in relation to outdoor dining, they agree that indoor dining is just ridiculous um, okay. for me personally. So outdoor dining isn't, un, is, doesn't has not caused any known outbreaks. I think my whole moral position on the thing has kind of, you know, I don't want to do that job during a pandemic. So I don't want to expect anyone else to do that job. Also, like I, I've been aiming to go to places where like there's a pickup window and then I go seat myself. So everyone can stay masked during that whole transaction, you know, it's more like retail at that point. Um, just cause yeah, just cause it just feels like, you know, it's just like this article explains, there's like a privileged party and a vulnerable party and I don't want to be a member of that privileged party during a pandemic, especially in, in an activity that is, you know, just it's for fun. It's not essential in the same same steps. It's at least the way I see it. Like, I, obviously, restaurants were considered an essential business. But the idea of having a server come to your table is like a relic from like, it almost feels like old world. You know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, here is my wait staff. And it's just like, and that's how it's treated in this country and other countries. There's is a... Uh, not every other country, but, you know, like in Paris, for example, they the people who serve you the food are, are treated with a certain level of respect that's not given. And they're here. not relying on people's tips to offset yeah. really low yeah. um, regular wages. 
yep, yep. you know they have exactly. health they have health care and things like that so here like yep, they're so precarious in normal times yep. so yep absolutely it's stuff like that where you know this is a lot and i think we're we're gonna have we're gonna talk a little bit well i don't know if we will this episode or not but um you know people with big business interests use or are able to thrive and invite like we've seen amazon small businesses are closing everywhere and amazon is thriving um and it's scary it's, it's happening across industries um because capitalism <laughs> uh we live in scary times just you know just be careful out there i'm personally look you know i'm worried about the servers because that's those are and, and the kitchen staff the people that you you know back of house too um because those are, tend to be the most vulnerable people. And I, I'm even lucky that, you know, I have a source of health insurance outside of my job. Um, so I, I am coming from this from a place of privilege. And I'm, I'm really worried for, you know, my friends and coworkers who don't have those privileges. Um, but yeah, that was my <laughs> really long story. No, I mean, it's an yeah. important one. And also with indoor stuff, there's a lot more overhead and everything that you have more people yeah. you have to pay if you don't yeah. just have takeaways. So like em everything that Emily said, but also bully your representatives into trying to support some sort of relief for these people. Yeah. It's really not there's I think New York City or the state has some of the like one of the largest numbers of billionaires per capita. And we can't even conceive of what a one billion dollars even is. And to have people yeah. with that amount of wealth just, you know, sit in pretty while people got to scrimp and save and struggle and risk themselves. It's absolutely shameless. It's absolutely. disgusting. So make these politicians afraid of you and demand better. Cause it's, it's really Absolutely. inexcusable. And, um, also for this particular issue, I, I haven't had a chance to explore it in depth, but, um, if you go to save restaurants.com, um, it's the independent restaurant coalition. And I think there's information on there about what you can do to help save, um, local restaurants. Um, yeah. So there's that. Um, Okay. And yeah. So thank you, Emily, for sharing all of that yeah. and for plugging a way that we can help. It's saverestaurants.com. Yep. Okay. Yep, yep. So make sure you go there, listeners, people, yeah. people out there on the airwaves. So um, yes. there's also something going on uh, that the radio station is behind this weekend. Um, Radio Free Brooklyn is pleased to announce Wall of Lies, a groundbreaking visual art project, one month before the presidential election of 2020. The project demonstrates the unprecedented lack of honesty from our current commander-in-chief who now has COVID. Wall of Lies is a 50-foot 50, 50 by 10-foot outdoor mural with a 20,000 or more lies told by Donald Trump so far while in office, documented and fact-checked by the Washington Post. Wall of Lies will be on public view outside Pine Box Rock Shop at 12 Grattan Street in Bushwick from noon Saturday, October 3rd until 7 p.m. Sunday, October 4th. So if you're listening on Sunday right now, you have until 7 p.m. to go check it out. The socially distanced live event accompanying, accompanying the mural includes a voter registration drive and a live Radio Free Brooklyn broadcast on Sunday from 3 to 6 p.m. 
Radio Free Brooklyn will be inviting members of the public to read some of Trump's most egregious lies on the air. So if you can, be there or be square. Nice. Awesome. Um, great. And Jasmine, are you are you doing a separate recording of yourself yes. also? Cool. Perfect. So um, I guess we're going to go into our first musical break and Teresa will introduce it for us. Yes. So here's Teresa. (laughs) Let's take our first musical break for you. It's October Libra season and we have some wonderful music for you today. The first track is from Aloe Black. This is All Love Everything. We'll be right back. Is it just me, or do you think about me like I think about you? Is it just me, or does the world stop spinning when you step into the room? Cause I don't need no money when I'm walking with a diamond. Looking like a million bucks and you ain't even trying. First class loving my high like we flying. That's how it be with you and me. It's like all of everything. I want to wake up in the morning with a wedding ring. Doing anything with you is my favorite thing. Like the sweetest melody, you make my heart sing out loud. Okay, so thanks, Teresa, for that musical selection. Um, As we said earlier, Teresa could not uh, physically be with us today, but she did send in a recording. Um, And this is Teresa with her national news story. Happy Sunday, everyone. This is Teresa Robinson, and I'm bringing you a national news story today about the census. Information for this story has been drawn from NPR, The Washington Post, and CNN. A federal judge has ordered that the 2020 census count continue until October 31st, blocking for now the government's effort to complete the survey in time to deliver data to the president by the end of the year. The ruling late Thursday night by the U.S. District Judge Lucy Coe follows a tense week in which the government appeared to try to circumvent a preliminary injunction against ending the count early. After stay-at-home orders forced the Bureau to postpone many of its plans, public calls for Congress to push back legal deadlines for reporting census results came in er early in April from President Trump and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who oversees the Census Bureau. This week, the administration tweeted another schedule change, setting a target date of October 5th for ending counting. In response to the coronavirus pandemic, the administration originally supported a longer schedule for the national count of every person living in the U.S. Census data is used to determine a decade's worth of federal funding, congressional apportionment, and state redistricting. Analysis have shown that an inaccurate count could harm both the Republican and Democratic states. But a data set delivered to the president, regardless of its accuracy, is necessary if the administration wants to try to exclude undocumented immigrants from the count while Trump is in office. A lawsuit brought by the National Urban League aid a truncated schedule that would irreparably harm communities that might be undercounted. On Friday, 
Kristen Clark, president of the executive director of Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights Under Law, said, once again, the court has stopped the administration in its tracks, noting that some states with significant minority populations still face an undercount. Coe said that the administration violated her directive to produce thousands of pages of internal records last weekend, explaining the decision. After the government produced only half of the records that were due last weekend and redacted most of the pages, Coe ordered the government to hand a set of about 15,000 pages over to her court by Friday. This week, she enlisted a team of magistrate judges who will review the records over this weekend to determine if any should be kept confidential. The administration says it believes the documents include several categories of privileged information that should not be released publicly, such as communications with the White House. A separate analysis by a statistical group released Thursday found that truncating the 2020 census timeline may be significant enough to change who receives seats in Congress. The research from the American Statistical Association indicates significant consequences to an early cessation of data collection operations and says that data will be less accurate. Mathematical modeling finds California, Ohio, or Idaho could gain seats at the expense of Florida and Montana. It concluded that apportionment and federal funding determined by Decennial census data would better reflect the U.S. population if the deadline were extended. Nationwide, 66% of households have responded to the survey, and Census Bureau employees have either counted or stopped visiting another 27% of households. This information is a bit haunting, considering all of the efforts that have been made for the census recognition and uh, explanation this year. I know that personally, I have participated in campaigns uh, through my work, through my students, and also witnessed them within my community from various organizations that care very much about this topic and about having the correct appropriation of funding, as well as congressional seats for our districts. Uh, the time now is more important than ever for us to know these who will represent these seats and participate in the count so that our communities will not be left out in very important funding decisions going into 2021. I urge you, if you have not yet, to complete your census, to share this information with anyone you may know, and also to encourage young people to participate. I think a lot of people who move out when they're young, if they're just getting their first apartments or things of that nature, or even young parents who may not be aware how important the census is for the appropriation of funding for their schools um, within the neighborhood for their children may not have participated the way that they need to. But now more than ever, communities of color and underserved communities need to be represented because as we can see during this pandemic, our communities have been the ones that are left out. They don't have the appropriate amount of resources that are necessary to keep everybody safe. And moments like this with the census, they only happen, you know, once every 10 years. So if you're listening to this now, you have not done that. The extension is to October 31st. Please take the time out to not only share this information, but also encourage, share links, and tell people why the census is an important part of our democracy, an important part of making sure that our communities are counted, 
an important part of making sure that our congressional seats represent the demographics that they are are elected to represent. And um, normally, like we would discuss it, but since we didn't get to hear it uh, before, like we don't know exactly what Teresa was speaking about, but we'll discuss it <laughs> next week. I'm sure when we're when the gang's all back together. But um, Emily, yeah. you okay, had. Yes. You had something else you wanted yeah, to so, speak yes. about? I did. I did. Thank you for the, the handoff. So this isn't normally what we we don't we normally don't have like another chunk story in here. But I actually heard about something this week and I start I wanted to just make a note of it. And then as I was learning more about it and writing more about it, I actually it turned into like sort of another story, a mini story, another sort of local story. Um, so essentially, um it's still de- what, what what I'm about to talk about is still developing, but it's an important issue that hopefully will gain some traction. Um, so the New School, which is a private research university in New York City, has just unveiled some massive massive austerity measures and staff cuts, uh, purportedly in response to a budget crisis due to COVID nineteen. From what I've been reading, uh, quote as much as thirty percent of department budgets and staff uh, might be cut, which is a huge percentage. Um, so uh, while I'm all sure we can understand the financial, well, I'm sure all of us can understand the financial issues that the pandemic has caused. Uh, the president of the university is apparently new to the community, only joining as president in April of this year. And there was basically no consultation with the various labor unions representing the faculty and administrative staff, nor with the university community at large. Uh, the petition I saw, I saw was started on September 24th and is addressed to the university's president stating, quote, we the representatives of some 3,700 unionized employees of the new school and our supporters throughout the university community are writing to express our deep concern and outrage at your exclusion of our voice in the conversation to reimagine the school's future. We have come together and created the new school labor coalition or NSLC and are writing once again to urge you to make a place for us to participate as a collective uh, body at this important juncture. Uh, So an article in the New School Free Press by Sanjay Reddy explains, quote, these steps are being taken with seemingly little attention to their effect on the academic mission of the university and with even less evident attention to the, quote, social justice goals to which the institution frequently claims to be committed. Moreover, these actions are being taken with little or no meaningful consultation with faculty, staff and students. They have been presented both as inevitable and irreversible, end quote. Um, Reddy goes on to make the argument that the new school currently faces not a chronic solvency crisis that would require a sort of total business remodeling that it's currently aiming for, but a shorter term liquidity crisis that might be solved by things like temporary salary cuts or some additional borrowing, even taking advantage of what's currently like the historically low interest rates that are currently out there. Um, And the school is just like not doing that. So the new school labor coalition made an additional statement that included this quote. Uh, As representatives of organized labor, we are well aware that using the pandemic as a motive for draconian restructuring is a standard play by management that reflects our political environment. We believe that many of society's failures, including favoritism, racism, gender bias, ageism, ableism, and more, are inherent in cuts made in such an environment. So I encourage uh, all the listeners to keep your eyes open to what's going on. you take a look, uh, look out for that, um, petition. 
um, and help spread the word. The coalition asks all members of the new school community who received layoff notices, who received a layoff notice, or so it was written before today, which is Friday, but who have received a layoff notice today, um, not to go quietly. They ask you to announce your layoff with the hashtag new school layoffs and include your background, title, years of service, department, and other relevant information. Um, that might, and also person, this is me, Emily talking, that might be kind of personal too, which is okay also to, um, but there's other ways you can kind of get out there, spread the word. Um, you can tweet at McBride and the NSLC and share the, uh, new, new school labor coalition, Facebook page. We ask faculty, students, New Yorkers, and members of the educational and activist communities to tweet, post to Facebook, email, and tag the new school and president Dwight McBride and send the following message. Dear President Dwight McBride, rescind the announcement of September 22nd, invite the NSLC to the table, and allow the task force to complete its work in good faith. So yeah, so that was my that was my MIDI announcement, Jasmine, that turned into a whole second story. Um, but it's important. And I think it it's also in some way, I mean, not exactly, but I I, I feel that there's a thread between this and my my story about restaurants too, and the way that big businesses often either use things like this as an excuse or benefit from them in the sense that they, they are able to quote, like, you know, cut the fat, but they never they cut the fat. To... They don't cut right. the fat. Right. They it's what they see as What fat. about the people, you know, one, I can't, I wish I could remember the name of the documentary, but years ago mm-hmm. when I was still in college, there was this documentary that came out just about like why is it that a lot of these colleges are so expensive and it was it went very much in detail about administrative bloat like how you have um there's fewer and fewer positions that are livable like pay livable wages for the people that are actually teaching and that you know actually provide services but Mm -hmm. there's all there's all these very high powered high salaried people that it's not really clear what it is mm-hmm. that they do that contributes to providing an education, you know, but whenever these things happen, mm-hmm. it's yeah, not the yeah. people that were making like shitty investment decisions, basically gambling on the stock stock market or whatever else. Those yeah. people are always fine. Like the people that end up getting cut are people that are much more likely to be a check or two away from being homeless or people that, are sick or their caregivers or their women or their black or another person of color, you know, it's the same issues. Like you're saying you see with restaurants or it's you see the same patterns everywhere. Absolutely. I, I read it in one of the piece, like the articles I found or like the petition itself. I can't remember where I saw it, but I'm pretty sure like they, they went right for the smaller administrative jobs to cut and not didn't cut like exactly what you're talking about. Like the higher, a higher paid salaries, like didn't get cut at all from what I saw trying to find it real fast. Um, Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to find it as fast as I'm looking for it, but um, which may or may not. Oh yeah. So yeah, I found it. It's in the statement that the, um, the new school, uh, labor coalition put out a second one. They said that um, the plans for layoffs have not been widely shared without significant cuts to higher salaried administrative and leadership positions. There is no guarantee that these layoffs will make a significant dent in the new school's budget shortfall of $130 million. Um, 
which unless the I'm misinterpreting that wording, it's saying specifically that there there really aren't being major cuts to higher salary positions. They're just cutting out, you know, the lower lower paid staff from the get-go yeah i mean it's, it's just it's a deep like this is what we mean when we talk about things being um institutionalized you know and systemic no matter what piece of the pie you're looking at there's going to be you know the same favoritism towards people that don't really need the extra help like they could survive a few years probably if they had to find another job versus you know the people that really mm-hmm. feel the brunt of all of these things it's always the same it's always the usual suspects you know the people that are the least likely to be able to withstand this type of shock are the first ones on the chopping block mm-hmm. because they know that individually they don't have power but you know it's good to see that there's labor forces that are coming together and i think you know, I don't. I try not to say that there's much of a silver lining with what's going on with COVID, but I think it is a good thing that because so many more people are being touched, there's more of an awareness mm-hmm. of how working collectively towards something you do have power, and mm-hmm. you know there is strength mm-hmm. in that. So the powers that be don't want you to yeah. forget it, and they want you to feel like you just have to suck it up and take it, but. That isn't the case, you know, and and I'm aware that that's a university that likes to put itself out there as being all about social justice or whatever. So I'm hopeful that the people Mm -hmm. who are fighting against it can point out that hypocrisy and actually have some of these things reversed because that's not what the school was allegedly supposed to be about all these years. And, um, you know, Mm -hmm. we're not going to take it. People like regular working people shouldn't have to put (laughs) up with this. You know, and I I don't think more of these types of decisions should keep happening around the country. Absolutely. And, you know, also another reminder, too, that um, in in the United States, many workers' health insurance are linked to your job, right? So you don't just, which is like the darkest, I don't know, irony, if I don't know if that's the right word, but it's like, it's just, it's such a fucked up and it feels like a scam thing in this country that not only can you lose your job, you can lose your ability to pay for the doctor, like twofold to pay in a pandemic, no less in this country's. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, beyond so another up. sad yeah. story. And, um, we're moving on to, um, well, we're going to take another musical break yeah. first, but, um, thank you for that, Emily, for sharing. Yeah. Um, please spread the word and look be on the lookout for other similar things that are happening. Cause it's not just that school. It's really like an epidemic of these yeah. decisions. Um, so here's Teresa back to introduce um, our next musical interlude. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. This is Objection to the Rule. So our second track of the day is a classic throwback from Bob Marley and the Wailers. This is Get Up, Stand Up. Stay tuned. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and thanks, Teresa, for that musical selection. Um, now we're going to move into uh, a world news story that is very somber, but I think it's, it's incredibly important to share. Um, this is about something that recently happened north of the border in Canada. So the name of this article is An Indigenous Woman recorded hospital staff taunting her as she lay dying by Lola Mendez. Um, it comes from, it was written on September the 30th. This just recently happened. On Tuesday, September the 29th, a video popped up online of a hospital patient named Joyce Echaquan, an indigenous woman being verbally harassed and called slurs by hospital staff while on her deathbed. This happened in Quebec, Canada, which is a majority French-speaking province. Joyce was only 37 years old when she died. She belonged to the Atikamekw, A-T-I-K-A-M-E-K-W, nation of Manawan, and had to spend her last moments hearing hospital staff, quote, insult her intelligence and capabilities as a mother. Joyce went to Joliet Hospital due to stomach pain the day before she died. She was a mother of seven children. And while she was in the bed, she decided to live stream her experience in the hospital in an effort to advocate for herself. But she incidentally wound up capturing racist verbal abuse that she was forced to hear before she passed away. One nurse asked Echaquan in French, are you done messing around? Multiple nurses continued with other insults like calling Joyce stupid as hell, accusing her of making bad choices, and asking what her children thought of her. She can be seen moaning in pain while all this is happening and later dies. The Quebec premier Francois Legault released a public statement that the racist remarks from the gaggle of nurses was unacceptable and committed to ensuring Echaquan's death would be thoroughly investigated. As of September 30th, investigations have launched into the circumstances surrounding her death by Quebec's coroner's office and the local health board, but only one of the nurses heard in the video has been fired. Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller mentioned that situations like this are why Indigenous people aren't at ease going to hospitals. He said this isn't an isolated event, but rather is part of a larger pattern of racism. The Canadian First Nations advocate uh, Perry Belgard tweeted, Joyce Echaquan, a young Atikamek woman, died while facing incredibly racist and insensitive taunts by Quebec healthcare staff. Discrimination against First Nations people remains prevalent in the healthcare system and this needs to stop. There was another incident earlier this year in British Columbia where hospital staff allegedly bet on the blood alcohol content of the hospital's indigenous patients. Joyce's death sheds light on the systemic racism in Canada that First Nations people endure in the healthcare system and beyond. The president of the Native Women's Association of Canada, Lorraine Whitman, recalled the horror of hearing Echaquan begging for help. It was with disgust that we heard a nurse, a woman who was supposed to care for her, utter racial slurs rather than come to her aid. 
she said, before wondering how many other indigenous women are being, quote, subjected to this sort of abuse in Canada, but don't have the courage or ability to film their own distress. So that's the end of um, that particular story. But I also wanted to mention that indigenous women, they're facing an epidemic, not only of this type of abuse, but also of going missing and being murdered in North America. According to an April 2016 inquiry between the years 1980 and 2012, indigenous women and girls were 16% of all female homicides in Canada, but they only constitute 4% of the female population in that country. A 2011 Statistics Canada report estimated between 97 and 2000, the rate of Aboriginal women and girls of being murdered was almost seven times higher than that for other females. And here in the United States, Native American women are more than twice as likely to experience violence than any other demographic. One in three Native women is sexually assaulted during her life, and 67% of these assaults are perpetrated by non-Natives. So, yeah, like very distressing news. I didn't watch the video. It, it just, I, it would have been really difficult um, to get through. But the information that I just shared with you, that was again from an article on Refinery29 written by Lola Mendez, if you'd like to um, read more and see some of the other news links attached. Thank you for that story, Jasmine. Um I hadn't I hadn't heard about that. That's like bone chillingly grotesque. I it was I just saw like a small snippet of her like lying in the bed and she just looked so helpless and I I didn't click play mm -hmm. but I just I cannot imagine what that's like. You know, we've just seen especially this year but it's just because there's more technology to record these mm -hmm. things but just, you know, the way that racism just is so blatant, so ugly that somebody can be begging for their life. You know, we've seen mm -hmm. people like crying out for their mother and then being beaten to death, basically, or choked to death. We see a mom herself yeah. being laughed at and mocked by people that are mm -hmm. supposed to take care of her. You know, yeah. it, there's a lot of teachers now, like they're in Zoom classrooms with their students and they see the way that the teachers talk to the kids and they wouldn't have seen it before. And there's been mm -hmm. teachers being exposed for saying like big pushing, like bigoted agendas. So mm. I hadn't heard about that either. Yeah, I've, I've been. Makes sense. Yeah. You know, there's so much of this that if it weren't for a camera, if it weren't for Joyce deciding to go live we wouldn't mm -hmm. know that this had happened to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's a good reminder too. Like I think a lot of people in a lot of, a lot of people fighting for justice in the U S maybe not a lot, maybe I'm speaking from personal his like things I've learned, but I think it's, it's hard or it's not hard, but I think we get, we forget that other countries aren't, like I'll have their own shit too. Right. With their own race. Like we're not the only country in the world that is, has to come to, has to deal with this shit. And maybe we're the worst <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, uh, or we're up there at least, but, um, yeah, like even Canada, which I know a lot of liberal people or like, you know, self Democrats and liberal people in the United States self-described, 
um, think of Canada as like this bastion where there's universal health care and stuff, but they have their own shit with the native population for sure that they, um, I, I think on a federal level, I might, I've had friends tell me that they have some legislation in place that's trying to rectify past wrongdoings. But what we're seeing right here is that they're still um, just amongst the population, like horrible biases. Um, yeah. That's treat, causing them to treat, you know, other people as less than human. Right. I mean, you're absolutely right that there's a lot of people, a lot of liberals who do paint Canada like it's some paradisaic mm-hmm. place. But, you know, the U.S., I think we have so many other structural problems, like with yeah. healthcare and other things, mm-hmm. and racism probably looks different. But let's not forget, it started with people colonizing these other places Mm -hmm. and it wasn't u.s people doing that to themselves so a lot of these things like they have their origins in europe and then it got exported Mm -hmm. onto other populations around the world and you know i just i wanted to say that you know i'm a black woman like my so primarily when i'm talking about racism i'm talking about it through the lens of things that Mm -hmm. i've experienced and that i know from myself personally and we are sort of hyper visible as black people like as far as our culture our cultural contributions when things happen to us in the news you know like it's very um yeah that's the word i would use i would say like we're hyper visible but then the other side Mm -hmm. of that coin is there are a lot of things that happen to native people you see a lot of erasure and Mm -hmm. people downplaying it like it's not a big deal. So Mm -hmm. recently there was a hashtag that went around like Brocahontas. I think it was about Mm -hmm. um, Elizabeth Warren. And there was another hashtag on Twitter that was similar or we we see like how these sports teams throw tantrums about using like racist mascots that are supposed to be representations of native people. And they really act as though Native people don't exist anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. meanwhile, with COVID, you know, I believe it's the Navajo Nation. Like, there's many people on reservations that don't have access to reliable water or safe water to keep clean or to go, you know, be able to take any of the precautions against this disease. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's just this story was, to me, another example of, you know, these genocides against native people and also like against black people as well they're not in the past people think of them as these things that happened years and years ago it's an ongoing onslaught of genocidal violence against indigenous people you know and Mm -hmm. that includes these situations where you're refusing to help someone on a hospital bed it doesn't have to be an army going in somewhere and wiping you out. It can be the stuff that's like piecemeal where they're killing Mm -hmm. you. Absolutely. And I think, I think you made a really, really good point about how racism manifests differently for different, um, what's the different group, uh, groups period. Like, so, and I think for native people's, I think you're absolutely right. There's a trend of, I forget what the wording was. I was listening to some podcast that was talking about it where it's like, if they become, it's, it's a liter, it's a, not a literary, it's like, um, an academic phrase, but it specifically is like, 
the history, like native peoples in this country, when the colonizers were coming here, were seeing them as like these villains that they had to be wiped out, right? They were like these like scary, you know, cowboys and Indians thing. And then once they were fully subjugated, the narrative changed to like the majestic Indian, you know, like the crying Indian campaign for the, um, which also, if you haven't listened to the podcast episode, oh, what's it about? But it's about how basically make America, like make it keep America beautiful was started by the plastics industry to essentially move. Yeah. It's it essentially because trash didn't exist as a concept before plastics decided that disposables were a good thing. So yeah, it's all. And then it was like, let's move that responsibility to the population and not to us. So that's a whole other thing. But the use of this, you know, this last, you know, lone Indian crying because of his beautiful, you know, that is a new narrative. And it, it turned because it turns Native peoples into something of the past, we're able to, as a as a society, treat them or forget about them, essentially, you know, like all this, sh- like they're they're living in reservations because of our country, our government years ago, and it's not hasn't been fixed. You know, the problem isn't over, but the lack of visibility lets that continue to happen. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So yeah. I, I wasn't able to find anything yet as far as like support for her family, because she did have mm-hmm. a, a lot of young kids that are going to need help now that they lost their mom. Seven. But we'll we'll definitely keep you updated on this story and ways that you can support. Um, there's there's one. This is a bit random, but there's a comedian. Um, he's a native uh, person named Joey Clift, and he had a re- he was a guest star on this show called How Did This Get Played, and it's it's about um, video games. And this, I only listened to this episode because he was on it and he really did such a good job of checking the host because they brought him on because they were discussing some video game that was like Custer's Last Stand or something. But it was like a video game where you were getting points for like killing native people or something. And I guess in their mind, they thought, oh, like what a wacky, ridiculous thing. And he was pointing out to them, like, you know what? This isn't past. Like, this still happens to people, you know? And, like, you don't you don't think about, you know, he also called them out on, like, you brought me here, like, for th- the Thanksgiving episode. When, uh, when other times of the year do you even think wow. about having Native people on? Like, he really spoke his mind, and I was like, you know what? That's so very true. You might wow. see a little bit of something around, like thanksgiving like there might be a special or whatever but if it's not like mockery or people minimizing or pretending to be native for some kind of benefit they you know what happens to indigenous peoples of the americas really doesn't get the attention that it deserves Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah so please keep your eye on our facebook page for updates on how you can support um, joyce's family and also be more aware of what's happening to other indigenous people in canada in other countries and Mm -hmm. also right here in the u.s Uh, we'll Mm -hmm. add some links to the show page for sure i think i think we're close to out of time i can quickly do my good news story oh okay We'll end with the song if that works for you, Jasmine. That works for me fine. Go, go right on ahead. I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Um, and sweet, just pit, put a pin in that word. Haha, <laughs> you'll see. Um, so this story is courtesy of my proverbial buddy, Andy Corbley, at thegoodnewsnetwork.org. 
he writes all the articles I'm most interested in there. Um, so this article is from t- September 29th, and it's titled, Bee Populations Are Increasing in Many States, with Maine seeing 70% rise in two years. Uh, so the article explains, quote, it's not often you hear good news about the health and prosperity of bee colonies in the United States or globally, for that matter. But recent data collections released by the U.S. Department of Agriculture show that some states are experiencing growth in colony numbers of 70 percent or more. Not only was there a 14 percent increase in the number of honeybee colonies from the period of January 2019 to January 2020, but the states experiencing the broadest increase in colony growth, Michigan, Nebraska, Oklahoma and Maine added tens of thousands of colonies. Also, quote, indeed, in the first half of 2020, the United States as a whole added roughly 420,000 more colonies to its bee populations than were lost. Um, So a little teeny bit of background on why this is important. A 2014 CBS News article explains that colony collapse disorder, or CCD, quote, has been devastating the U.S. honeybee population since at least 2006. And that surprise, pesticides likely play a big role in that. Um, If you're still not convinced that this matters, check out the BBC piece, uh, quote, Would We Starve Without Bees, which explores how a significant portion of food is linked to bees. Um, And I think the article is UK specific, but you sort of get the point. Um, So the Good News Network also explains that if you're looking for ways to help the bees, consider rethinking weeds. Quote, there are plants, dandelions, for instance, that are often treated as weeds, but which also offer bees important nectar and pollen supplies. Um, so yeah, end lawn culture, let your weeds grow and help the bees go bees. That's my little story. Yeah. I'm always so happy. I saw a few when I was at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and I'm always Mm -hmm. so happy when I see them. I feel like such a nerd. I'm like, (laughs) oh, it's a bee. Yes, bees. Definitely. It's so important. And I think like as kids, like we grew up being like, ah, bee. But now it's like, oh, oh my God, thank also, God. if you've ever seen my girl. Whew. Oh my God. Trauma. Yeah. Trauma. <laughs> he can't see without his glasses. Oh, it's so sad. Oh God. But they're not villains. We need. No, we need the bees. Yeah. Yay. Okay. So now is it okay to introduce the last song? I think so. I think we're done. I think. We'll introduce Teresa and say bye-bye. Yeah, well, thank you for listening to uh, Ejection to the Raw on Radio Free Brooklyn. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And here is Teresa taking us out with our last musical pick of the day. Bye. Bye. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day from two of my favorite Libra artists. This is Cardi B and Bruno Mars with Please Me. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.